Welcome to the show that gets Christians thinking about faith and politics. Get ready to challenge the status quo, expand your imagination, and tackle controversy head on. Let's stand together at the intersection of faith and freedom. It's time for the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute and part of the Christians for Liberty Network. I am your host, Doug Stewart, and my guest today is Nalei Saya, who is Assistant Professor of Public Policy and Global Affairs at Nanyang Technological University in Singapore. He is author of The Global Politics of Jesus, A Christian Case for Church-State Separation, which is the topic of today's conversation. Nalei, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me, Doug. So tell us a little bit about yourself, about your background in education, and why you thought that the separation of church and state from a Christian perspective was an important topic to write about. Yeah, so I kind of have an interesting background. I am an Indian American who currently lives in Singapore. My parents were immigrants to the United States in the late 1970s. So I grew up as a first-generation Indian in central Pennsylvania. So my parents were Christians, and I'm a Christian as well. And we attended a conservative evangelical fellowship when I was growing up. And what was interesting about this church is that it was very patriotic. So the Sunday closest to Memorial Day and the Sunday closest to the 4th of July, there would be a very patriotic kind of service. And church would be wrapped in flags. There would be salutes to veterans. The congregation would sing songs like God Bless America. We would sing the national anthem. And so I kind of began wondering, kind of having this multicultural experience, having been abroad for a number of years, you know, what all this had to do with the gospel. And I found this to be problematic, even as an adolescent. And then I think the real turning point came for me in 2016 during the presidential election. And what I saw happening was something I hadn't really seen before, at least not to the same degree that it was happening in 2016. And here you had a presidential candidate, Donald Trump, who managed to capture 81% of the white evangelical vote. And this was perhaps the most immoral person to run for the presidency in at least modern American history. And not only did Trump manage to capture 81% of the white evangelical vote, the evangelicals who were voting for him and supporting him were making Christian arguments for why they were going to vote for Trump. So I found this to be very alarming. And I think the idea for the book kind of came out of these experiences growing up in an evangelical church and then the 2016 presidential election. And then in 2018, I moved to Singapore to take up a teaching post at my current university. And I remember we were picked up from the airport by a taxi and this taxi driver hung a cross from the rearview mirror. And we started talking and he wanted to know where we were from. And I said we were from the United States. And then he became very excited and he said, oh, Trump, he's a good man. He's a Christian. And he went Mm. on to say that he believed that the election of Trump in the United States would lead to a national revival. And he expressed hope that the same kind of thing could happen in Singapore. And so here I am halfway around the world and I still can't get away from Trumpism. (laughs) And so, um, (laughs) yeah, and so I found that this view wasn't necessarily isolated to an eccentric cab driver. 
this was something that was prevalent in certain Christian communities here in Singapore as well. So I think all of these factors led me to kind of want to write this book on why Christians should support the separation of church and state. We hear this argument being made by secularists, by liberals, but I think it's a deeply Christian idea as well. I think a lot of Christians sort of implicitly agree with this in some ways, but I think a lot of, I would say even the church you grew up in, and I grew up in a very similar type of church, maybe not quite as much flag-waving as you just described, but it does seem that many Christians believe that they should have a voice in politics. How does the phenomenon that you're sort of reacting to, and appropriately so, I will agree, how is that different from just simply having a voice in politics? Yeah, so I'm not necessarily arguing in this book that Christians have to stay away from politics altogether, that they can't have a voice in public affairs. I think those kinds of things can be healthy. What I am against is the idea of Christian nationalism. And I define Christian nationalism as an ideology that advocates for the fusion of church and state to some degree and for a privileged position for Christianity in the public realm. So that's the kind of thing that I'm opposed to. I'm opposed to state support for Christianity to an extent that it wouldn't give the same kind of support to other religions. And I'm also against the idea of a Christian state. So to give you an example, there are many countries in the world that have constitutions that officially declare the country to be a Christian state. They have national churches. So that's the kind of thing that I'm opposed to, yeah. but not necessarily to Christians having a voice in politics or voting or anything like that. Yeah. So early on in the book, you have this quote, much of political theology cannot be reconciled with some of the most fundamental teachings of Christ. What do you mean by this? I mean, there's so many people out there that claim to be following Christ and offering a political ethic of Christ. And it's hard to believe that people actually are and like they can't all be right. So mm -hmm. what do you think of the political theology out there and why are they at odds with the teachings of Christ? Yeah, so I think I should note that this book is a book about political theology. And what I mean by political theology is how Christians should relate to political authority. Now, what I'm doing in this book is I'm taking on the conventional wisdom among Christians mm -hmm. that the way that Christians should approach culture and politics is through a theology of transformation, right? So this is kind of the dominant view that Christians have about politics. And I'm taking on that conventional wisdom and I'm arguing for something different here, which makes my book kind of fringe. And for that reason, a lot of people aren't going to like it very much. <laughs> what transformationalism says is that because God rules over the whole world, the church must work to manifest that lordship in every area of life, including politics. And so therefore, Christians have a responsibility to redeem and to transform and to ultimately mm. control their cultures and politics and bring them in line with the Christian worldview. And so transformationalists believe that Christians should seek positions of power within the state and mm. also seek to shepherd the state. So we can think about an example here from the United States, right? So since the 1960s and 1970s, there's been this conservative Christian movement that has been increasingly alarmed at trends happening in American society. And so for them, they believe that these negative trends are directly associated with essentially kicking God out of the public square. 
And so if that's true, then the way you restore America, the way you make it great again is to bring back God, to take America back for God, right? And so I think this fear in the United States stems from two different sources, globalization and secularization. So let me explain what I mean by that. About 50 years ago, it wouldn't have been uncommon for any town in, say, Pennsylvania or Ohio to have been 99% Caucasian and Christian. But that may not be the case anymore. With globalization, we see increasing religious pluralism and diversity. Mm -hmm. And so that same town today may have not only a church, but a mosque, maybe a Hindu temple or a Sikh temple, and there would be increasing religious pluralism as well. So the town may not be 99% Christian anymore. It might be 80% Christian with the rest being some combination of Jews, Hindus, Muslims, atheists, and so forth. And when you combine this with the trends towards secularization that we see in the United States today, with fewer Americans self-identifying as Christians as they're not attending church on a regular basis and so forth. This is leading to a great deal of alarm in Christian communities. And so this kind of heightens the need to take America back for God. So to give you just one example, the Uvalde massacre that took place at that school in Uvalde, Texas. After that event took place, there was a congressman from Texas, Louis Gohmert, who blamed the massacre on not allowing school prayer in public schools. So his suggestion was that if you just allow prayer in public schools, these kinds of massacres wouldn't happen anymore. So that's mm. an example of yeah. you know, trying to take America back for God. Do you think this is a matter of Christians realizing that the state is not the main way that we can take the America back for God? I mean, here's the thing in my mind. To take America back for God, I don't know, in a good way, would be that there's revival that many people convert, that the majority or even just a large amount of the culture just begins following Christ. And that in and of itself doesn't seem like a bad thing. That's a really great thing, actually. I shouldn't say it doesn't seem like a bad thing. That's a really great thing. But it doesn't seem like when people say they want to take America back for God, they basically want to make the government of America more Christian. But that doesn't even follow in my mind. Is this just a matter of like keeping the state out of things? So I think what this shows is just the degree to which the Christian imagination has been captured by the quest for political power. And I think you're right. Like genuine repentance and renewal will lead to a kind of revival. But that isn't what we hear Christian leaders talking about so much. Mm in the United States, and especially those who are deeply involved in politics, you know, they believe that we need to do this from the top down, not from the bottom up. And we need to Christianize the state. And then that Christianized state can pass laws and policies that will flow down to the rest of society and Christianize society as well. Mm -hmm. And I think that's deeply problematic. You know, sure, so, the, yeah. you know, this church that I was talking about that I grew up in, every patriotic service, we would hear the pastor quote, Second Chronicles 7.14. And if you're not familiar with that verse, yeah. it says, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and turn and heal their land, right? Now, 
there's nothing in that verse about political dominance or trying to enact some kind of political agenda. But this is always how that verse was interpreted, right? So if the wrong political party is in power, this is a symptom that America has turned its back on God. And the way that you get Christianity back on its feet again, and you maintain that Christian heritage is through politics. So I agree with you completely. I don't necessarily think that this is the way that we ensure the survival of Christianity, but I think it also shows the degree to which the Christian imagination has been co-opted by the quest for political power. Yeah. You know, it's interesting that quote was very often used in my circles growing up and in very similar types of ways in patriotic services. But here's what's kind of interesting about that is I at least remember one preacher making very clear. Now, he was still patriotic, still wanting America to be taken back for God, whatever that's supposed to mean. But he was very clear that this verse was for the church to pray that God would heal the church because the church is tainted. We don't have a good witness. We're broken. And so the church needs to pray. The people of God need to pray so that God will heal them. And Mm -hmm. land was taken metaphorically in this sense. Yep. And then we can change the culture. It wasn't even about like, and he made it clear, like this isn't talking to America. This is talking to Israel, which is God's people. So I'm like, that's probably a one step up, a better interpretation, I suppose. And I guess if we're going to apply that verse to ourselves today, it is about the people of God being healed and so forth. But I feel like as I meet a lot of people who grew up in very similar circles that I do, that I I avoided some of the worst (laughs) of what was out there in the stereotypically bad (laughs) of (laughs) hyper-fundamentalism and patriotism, because I don't know, Mm -hmm. it just seemed like it was a little bit more nuanced for me, which I guess is a good thing. But I totally understand it because I came from that. You know, I think this gets at a really important question, and that is how does the church see itself? Right? Does the mm. church see itself as an incarnation of ancient Israel? And I think in a lot of conservative evangelical circles, that's exactly how the church sees itself, as God's new chosen people. So any verses in the Hebrew scriptures apply directly to the church today, even if they were spoken to Israel back then, because the church is the new Israel and America is God's new chosen people, all these verses directly apply to the United States, right? I don't think that's how we should be seeing ourselves as Christians. I think it would make more sense to see ourselves living as aliens and strangers in the world rather than countries being specially chosen for a divine purpose. What do you make of the verse, blessed is a nation whose God is the Lord? Again, I think this is a verse that applies to Israel and I don't think it's a good idea for individual countries to be appropriating a verse like that and saying this applies to us as it did to Israel. Hi, this is Gregory Baus. And this is Carrie Baldwin. If you're enjoying this podcast, you may want to check out the other shows in the Christians for Liberty Network, such as the Reformed Libertarians podcast hosted by me and Carrie. We educate and inspire listeners to embrace and promote libertarianism as grounded in the Reformed faith. The Christians for Liberty Network is dedicated to offering a variety of content you love, like what you're hearing in this very episode. So now back to the show, and then be sure to check out reformedlibertarians.com. You know, I agree with you about the living as strangers and exiles, because that is also one of the roles that Israel played. 
and they played it in a land of <laughs> decadence. You read the first chapter of Isaiah and you can kind of see the social decay around them. And you also see in the prophets a calling back, a calling out, a way of following God that is different from what is the empire's way of doing those kinds of things. And I'm bringing that up because you have a third way called prophetic witness. And before we kind of jump to that, we probably need to talk about the first two ways that Christians often are taking things. And you've somewhat described that, this whole transformationalism. I think you're also using the word Christianism, which I think is a great term to use. Can you describe that a little bit more? So, I mean, Christianism is kind of the Christian version of Islamism, right? So Christianism involves a political ideology that seeks to Christianize nations. And again, this can happen in one of two ways. There is Christian nationalism, which attempts to advocate for a privileged position for a certain form of Christianity in the public square. And then there's also the official or legal Christian state, where a constitution of a country might officially declare a state to be Christian or have an established national church and so forth. So that's what I mean by Christianism. Mm -hmm. So it happens when Christianity becomes wedded to the quest for political power just like it happens in Islam and really any other religious tradition, the same thing can happen in Christianity. Now, sometimes I get pushback from people saying, you know, Christian nationalism, it really isn't a thing, right? This is something that critics of Christianity are saying, but it really doesn't exist, at least not to the extent that people claim that it does. But, you know, my response to that is Christianity really isn't that distinct when it comes to political power, right? If you can find Muslim forms of nationalism in places like Pakistan, Afghanistan, Sudan, Iran, Saudi Arabia, and so forth. If you can find Buddhist forms of nationalism in Thailand and Sri Lanka and Myanmar, and you have, of course, Jewish nationalism in Israel, Hindu nationalism in India, why is Christianity really so different? Why mm. would we expect that Christians wouldn't be susceptible to the same temptations of power that these other faith traditions are. So in that sense, I really don't think that Christianity is all that different. Yeah. Mm -hmm. There seems to be somewhat of an opposite reaction to Christianism, which you call okay. detachment. And given where you grew up and where I live, there is a lot of detached, I would say faiths, but I mean, uh, like denominations. And it's very similar, you know, like the Amish the Anabaptist mm -hmm. tradition is often in that way. What does a politic of detachment typically look like? Yeah, so I think a politics of detachment essentially says Christians don't really have any role in the public square whatsoever. And that Christians need to be focused on living holy lives and preaching the gospel. But, you know, the world is seen as a sinking ship. And the role of Christians is to rescue as many people from that doomed ship as possible before the world comes to an end. And so they kind of renounce any public responsibility. But I also find this to be very problematic, perhaps not as problematic as Christianism, because there are far fewer people who believe in detachment theology that, than Christianism. But it's a problem because I think if you look at the life and teachings of Jesus, it's very clear that he was very involved in the public square healing people, ministering to their needs, and so forth. And I think that's what the church is called to do today, just looking at the example of Christ. How much of your views are 
connected to what is called Two Kingdoms theology. Right. So for those who may not be aware, there is this idea that stands in contrast to transformationalism called the theology of the two kingdoms. And essentially what this theology holds is that there are two different kingdoms that exist in the world, the so-called common kingdom, or as I refer to it, the kingdom of the world. And then there is the kingdom of God, or what I call the kingdom of the cross. So that two kingdoms theology holds that there are these two different kingdoms that exist simultaneously. Now, this is in mm-hmm. contrast to transformationalism, which holds that there's only one kingdom, right? And God is Lord and King over all of that kingdom. And so Christians need to make manifest that lordship in every area of life. Two kingdoms theology holds a different view of the world. There are two kingdoms. And that these two kingdoms represent two completely different and antithetical orders of reality. Right. So two kingdoms theology has actually fallen out of favor in recent times, but it has a long and venerable history in the Christian tradition. It goes back to thinkers like Augustine of Hippo and Pope Galatius, Aquinas, Luther, Mm -hmm. Calvin. But I would argue it goes back to Jesus himself. And you can trace this idea of two kingdoms theology in Jesus's teaching that his kingdom is not of this world. And so if Jesus's kingdom is not of this world, that means that there are two different kingdoms. There is the kingdom of this world and then Jesus's kingdom, which is not of this world. And so what I argue in my book is that Christians trying to advance the kingdom of God through politics or through the kingdom of the world is essentially like trying to play the game of football using the rules of basketball, right? It's not going to work very well. And that's because each of these kingdoms operates according to its own set of rules. And these rules are completely antithetical to the rules of the other kingdom. And so the attempt to apply the rules of the kingdom of the world to the kingdom of God results in Christianity sacrificing its guiding principles. So that's kind of the argument that I lay out in the second chapter of my book. And we can think about this in four different areas, power, violence, exclusion, and the end goals of both kingdoms. So very quickly, what do I mean by that? Let's start with power. So the two kingdoms, the common kingdom and the kingdom of God, both believe in the idea of power. But what they mean by power is completely different, right? So in the kingdom of the world, you kind of have this coercive power over dominating kind of power. The political scientist Hans Morgenthau referred to this as an animus dominandi. The idea is to try and dominate other people or other cultures or other countries. And this is the kind of power that's pervasive in the kingdom of the world. Now, in the gospel, there is also a form of power, but it's completely different. It's a power under, it's a power of service and humility. And we see this in Jesus's teaching. He was approached by the mother of James and John. And the mother of James and John had a request for Jesus and she said, Lord, grant that one of these sons will sit at my right hand and the other at your left hand in your coming kingdom. And in response, Jesus called his disciples to him and he said, look, you know that the Gentiles, rulers exercise authority over them. And that's not going to be the case with you. Instead, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant. Whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the son of man didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom of many. So that's the kind of power we're talking about in the gospel. 
And we can also point to other domains where these two kingdoms operate according to different rules. For example, violence, right? So violence is completely normal and natural in the kingdom of the world. States employ the sword to protect themselves from external aggression and to maintain internal peace and security and order. But violence, I believe, is something that's completely antithetical to Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, right? When Jesus was giving his Sermon on the Mount, he said, you have heard that it was said eye for eye and tooth for tooth, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him, the other also. So I think for that reason, certain roles in the state are off limits for Christians, including serving in the military. And then with respect to exclusion and inclusion, nation states are based on the principle of exclusion, right? So it's the idea that people who belong to a certain community, whether that community is defined on the basis of language or religion or the belief in a common history and destiny or ethnicity, those people deserve to have their own states. But Christianity is an inclusive religion. It's open to everyone, regardless of their class, social standing, race, ethnicity, gender, so forth. And then finally, the end goals of both kingdoms are completely different. So in the case of the kingdom of the world, the end goal is survival. And the end goal for Christians is the redemption of the world. And that may involve being martyred for the sake of the kingdom of God. So for those reasons, I would argue that we have two completely different kingdoms that operate according to different rules. And the rules of one kingdom don't apply to the other. Yeah, yeah. I think your analysis is certainly spot on, especially the aspect of violence. I mean, that clearly overlaps with the libertarian critique of, of the way the state operates. I think a lot of people may wonder, well, like, okay, so I can believe in two kingdoms theology, but then sort of also hold and maybe taking nationalism out of it, maybe hold like a dual citizenship, right? And sort of be like, oh, well, of course my goal as a Christian is to save as many souls as possible or to transform the culture without using the state maybe. And, you know, sort of be, well, I'm going to use the word prophetic witness because it's staring me in the face here in uh-huh. my notes. Because, uh-huh. And that's also the phrase that I often will use to describe what we are. But I can also see that people are like, but I can also vote and I can also speak truth to power and I can also like have a role because Caesar is giving me a say by by letting me vote is kind of the idea. Like, what do we do when Caesar says, well, what do you want me to do or what can I do? I realize Caesar's used metaphorically here, of course, because the Caesars probably really didn't care, but okay. democracies allegedly at least do. So Maybe before you answer that, I should probably let you explain your third way, which is prophetic witness, and sort of describe that a little bit. Yeah, sure. So in contrast to transformationalist theology and theology of detachment, I believe that there is a third approach that Christians can participate in their public life, and I call this prophetic witness. So as depicted in the Bible, the prophets were countercultural radicals, and they mourned the tendency of the people of God to seek accommodation with the world. And the prophets are also portrayed as thorns in the flesh of those in power. And conversely, kings as forces of persecution who fear prophets and kill them. And so this whole idea is that prophets don't seek power. And prophetic witness requires the church to maintain a sphere of independence from the state, just like the prophets were independent (laughs) back in biblical times. So the church needs to be independent from the state today. And prophetic witness understands that the church 
is its own alternative polity. And it has its own unique way of addressing the problems afflicting the world. And the church's way of doing this isn't the same as the world's way of doing it, right? So in the book, I talk about different examples of prophetic witness. And there are many that you could point to throughout the history of the church, but I'll just mention two of them. The first is what I call, or actually it's not my term, but it's a term coined by sociologist James Davison Hunter. It's what he calls faithful presence. Mm-hmm. And he developed this idea in his book to change the world, the tragedy, irony, and possibility of Christianity in the late modern world. And essentially, Hunter argues that Christian attempts to change the world through politics have backfired. And he instead calls on Christians to be faithfully present in the communities where they find themselves and to be fully present in spirit and in peace and in love in their families, in their neighborhoods, their places of employment, and so forth. So in this way, Christians will change the world, but they're not going to be able to do it by trying to co-opt political power. And then the second example I would point to is Catholic social teaching. And I think Protestants have a lot to learn from this. And Catholic social teaching is concerned with the building of a just society and how Christians can pursue faithful and holy living in the midst of the modern world. But importantly, Catholic social teaching also doesn't call for Christians to try and take over the state or to otherwise Christianize their culture. And they also do this using a degree of independence from the state. So I think that's very important. And a great example here would be the Catholic worker movement, mm-hmm. which you know has made a huge difference in the world. But you know the Catholic worker movement is very clear that it doesn't have any desire to be aligned with any state. Hmm. Yeah. So in connection to the question I asked you before telling you to describe the prophetic witness when there are Christians out there who think that they are sort of keeping a maybe dual loyalty or maybe not loyalty, but like citizenship and say, oh, well, I'm placed in America. So I am here placed by God. I'm here to witness to those around me involved in my sphere of influence. Yeah, Nale, I agree with your prophetic witness, but I'm given a vote. I'm given a voice and I cannot stand by and let non-Christians and godless people become elected officials. And so since I have a voice, I need to stand up and actually either vote a certain way or even just advocate for certain just laws, maybe. How would we discern whether or not we're really sort of drifting into transformationalism versus just being a prophetic witness in a proper sense? Yeah, I think this idea of dual citizenship or dual loyalties, I find to be problematic. And I think on the one hand, yes, people do have dual citizenships, right? Christians are, of course, in the kingdom of God first and foremost, and then they are citizens of their countries officially. But I don't think that this is the right way for Christians to think about how they live in the world. The reason I say that is Jesus said, no one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to one and despise the other. Now, the immediate context there was money. But I think the teaching applies to any area of life, whether it's finances or politics or society or whatever. You can't have two masters. Now, this goes back to what I was saying before. Because the kingdom of God and the kingdom of the world represent these two completely different orders of reality, it will frequently be the case that the kingdom of God 
stands in contradiction to the kingdom of the world. And that's especially true in the realm of politics. So I think the scripture makes it clear that for Christians, we have not two loyalties, but a singular loyalty. And that loyalty is to the church of Jesus Christ. Now, does that mean that Christians shouldn't be good citizens of the countries where they live? Absolutely not. And this kind of gets to your next question. I believe that Christians do have a responsibility to their countries. They have a responsibility to do good to the city, as we read in the book of Jeremiah. And in doing this, Christians will actually help create the conditions that allows for Christianity to flourish. So just like the Israelites did this in Babylon, so we're called to do this today, to be the best citizens of our countries where our conscience allows, our conscience allows us to do so. But mm-hmm. in those cases where we can't, then I think we have an obligation to resist the state. Oh, I also wanted to touch on your question about what about godless people being elected to power and don't Christians have a responsibility to shepherd the state? Here's the thing. When I look at world history, it's clear that some of the worst political leaders in the world have been really staunch atheists, people like Hitler, Stalin, and Mao, Pol Pot, and so forth. But at the same time, I don't find that much evidence that Christians being in power has actually led to better social and political outcomes either. Now, they may not be mass murderers most of the time, but you do find Christians being involved in terrible abuses of human rights around Mm -hmm. the world. They've become entangled with political power, right? So we see this in Argentina with the Catholic Church's support of the Argentine regime's dirty war. We see it in Rwanda with Christian complicity and Rwanda genocide. We see it in South Africa with the Dutch Reformed Church's support for apartheid. And we see it even today with the Russian Orthodox Church's support for Vladimir Putin's Mm. war in Ukraine. You know, we can also look specifically at the United States. So as I look at the United States, presidential history, two presidents stand out as being uniquely religious to me in modern history, Jimmy Carter and George W. Bush. Now, Jimmy Carter, God bless him, He's in his final days now. And by all accounts, he was a very moral person. And one thing that stands out about his presidency is that it was pretty free from political scandals, which is how quite remarkable by today's standards. <laughs> but most presidential analysts and historians would also say that the Carter presidency was a failed presidency <laughs> for a variety of reasons, not necessarily tied to Carter's Christianity, but it also goes to show that simply electing a Christian to office doesn't guarantee anything in terms of political success. And so just as the Carter presidency was a failed presidency, I would argue on the other side, the presidency of George W. Bush was also a failed presidency. And his failures, I think, can be directly tied to Christianity. So back in 2000, Bush ran on this campaign platform of compassionate conservatism. And evangelicals just uh, rallied to him in both the 2000 and 2004 elections. But Bush also carried the country off to war in 2003, the war in Iraq based on false pretenses. And that war resulted in the deaths of hundreds of thousands of Iraqis, the displacement of millions of people, both internally and outside of Iraq, and also to the deaths of many American soldiers. And the United States spent 
so much blood and treasure in that war really hasn't gotten anything in return for it. Hmm. And what's particularly disturbing about the Iraq war is before the Iraq war, there was a rather sizable Christian community, an indigenous community that existed in Iraq before 2003, about 1.5 million Christians lived there. Today, as a result of the Iraq war, the devastating consequences that it brought about, including the rise of ISIS, that Christian community now numbers about 100,000. So, I mean, this is just a terrible consequence of a war that was supported by evangelical Christians in the United States. And I would argue that if evangelicals hadn't supported that war, that it would have been very difficult for Bush to have taken the country off on an unpopular war back in 2003, especially when he was thinking about re-election the following year. Yeah. So maybe there doesn't need to be a Christian in office, whether it's a president or some other, but maybe just a person who will listen to Christians. I mean, I think Trump, I don't think he ever really professed faith, but he certainly made it very clear that he will listen to the Christians. And so maybe that's what the allure is, is like, well, we don't need to. And and I think Ronald Reagan did some similar. I don't know what his faith profession was. I'm not recalling it off the top of my head here, but it seems like Christians just want to be heard. And so they're going to want a politician who kind of gives them that sort of feeling of Christianizing the government. One of the things that I find remarkable about Trump is, yes, he promised to listen to Christians. But when he was campaigning to be president, he also explicitly disavowed the First Amendment to the Constitution. Both clauses, the the Establishment Clause and the Free Exercise Clause. And I think back to this speech that Trump gave while he was on the campaign trail at a Christian college in Iowa. And this was the speech where Trump said that he could stand on Fifth Avenue and shoot someone and not face any consequences, right? Now, that's the line that everyone took away from this speech. That's the line that journalists wrote about the New York Times and the Washington Post and so forth. But as I listened to the speech, that wasn't the most important line in that speech. The most important line from that speech that Trump gave was that if he were to be elected president, Christianity would have real power. And I think the evangelicals who heard this line knew exactly what he was talking about. And they saw the election of Trump as a way to politically and socially empower Christianity. So it wasn't merely a case of Trump promising to listen to Christians, which of course, some could say that he did, but it was a rejection of the First Amendment and him promising to privilege Christianity in politics. And at the same time that he was promising to privilege Christianity, He was also talking about placing all mosques in the country under a kind of registry. And he was talking about torturing the family members of suspected terrorists. And so as he's promising to privilege Christianity, he's also talking about repressing Islam and other religions. And that's the very definition of Christianism, Christian nationalism. Yeah, And I think it raises an important point because, as you said, Trump, I don't think anyone would say he was a devout Christian, but it also shows that one doesn't have to be a devout Christian to be a Christian nationalist or a Christianist. Mm, Yeah. You know, they just have to promise to empower Christianity. And at the same time, you know, because Christian nationalism is opposed to the basic tenets of the faith, one doesn't have to be a Christian to be a Christian nationalist. Yeah. 
Do you think those on the left, I'm thinking of more of like the Jim Wallace, Sojourners, progressive Christian left, do you think that they are Christian nationalists, just not in name? I don't know that I would call them Christian nationalists because they don't necessarily advocate for a privileged position for Christianity in a country's law or politics or society. But at the same time, I think the methods matter. And essentially what these individuals are doing is they are using Christianity as kind of a political tool, right? Now, their goals are different from the right-wing Christian nationalists. Mm -hmm. They have kinder, gentler goals of equality and justice and so forth, and that's all well and good. But I think the means matters. And because they're seeing Christianity as a means to an end, this also can fall into a similar kind of trap, even if the end yeah. result is different. Yeah. I think I might disagree with you there. I think the sojourners left, I'm just going to call them that for shorthand. They really do want the state's laws to reflect like the Sermon on the Mount and the red letters, as they sometimes say, and that they want a different set of moral principles written into law, codified into law, as opposed to conservative Christians who are going to be more about like personal moral behaviors. One of our podcast hosts on our network, Carrie Baldwin, she says that basically the left tries to make the love your neighbor as yourself, like codified into law. And that, that's what the left does. And on the right, they want to make love the Lord your God with all your heart codified into law. Mm. And that both are trying to sort of make the state enforce those in just in different ways. And one of the things that I think is interesting about this whole separation of church and state is I wonder if like when Trump was president, if he had gotten up, did a press conference and said, you know what? The Lord spoke to me in a dream last night that I've been thinking about this all wrong and we need to apply the words of Jesus directly to the state politics and we are going to enact universal health care and we're going to take care of our elderly and we're going to beef up Medicaid and Medicare and Social Security, basically the wish list of the left. Definitely. And if he had couched it in Jesus told me this, this is straight from the Bible, this is a Christian way of doing things, they wouldn't care whether or not this whole concept of church and state, it would go out the window for them. Now, on the one hand, they might just say, well, Trump said it, he's not legit or something crazy like that. But I don't think they care. I really don't. So I don't, I don't know. You don't have to respond too much with that. Yeah. But I actually do think that they're a little bit more Christian nationalists. They just don't want to admit it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I agree with what you said as well. I think the big difference is that their ideal state, while it might be Christian, it would also be open to all faith traditions and those of none as well. And that isn't necessarily the case for the right-wing Christian nationalists. Yeah, no, that, that's a fair point. They are definitely more inclusive, which is interesting because the whole idea of exclusivity that you're talking about with your the traits of the kingdom of this world. So how would you advise as somebody, let's say you've convinced all of my audience to live as a prophetic witness and they're listening to you and they're they're saying, okay, so what do I do? How do I actually achieve shalom in the world? How do I live out in a way that is not living like I have a citizenship to my state, but a citizenship in heaven? What do I do with my prophetic voice that honors Christ in my life? Yeah, here again, I would point to the idea of faithful presence. And I think this is really what the church should be all about. When Jesus encountered needs, he ministered to those people. He healed them and he set them free. You know, when he began his ministry, he 
read from the scroll of the prophet Isaiah, and he proclaimed freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed. And I think that's what the church is called to do today, to be faithfully present in the different spheres of life where the church finds itself. And it doesn't do this by trying to take over the state, by baptizing nations or political parties or political leaders. The church will change the world when it acts like the church in the world, what the church is supposed to be. And it does this by following in the example of Christ. So whatever Christ did to heal the world around him, I think that's what the church is called to do today, to be faithfully present. Well, I entirely agree with that. And I like the language that you're using here, faithfully present, prophetic witness. We could have gotten to a whole handful of other topics, mm-hmm. including things like foreign policy, which is certainly relevant right as we speak. Yeah. We're recording this right after Biden has traveled to Ukraine mm-hmm. in the year 2023. So this is kind of relevant. But Nale, I really appreciate you joining me for talking about what we did. I enjoyed your book. And I hope that our listeners will get it as well. It's a Christian case for church-state separation. That's the subtitle. The title is The Global Politics of Jesus. We'll put a link to the show notes page. Is there anywhere people can reach you online if they want to send any comments or any feedback on our conversation? I am totally off social media. So oh, good for you. Have any stuff yet. Um, I but, have to do social media due to my the nature of my work. <laughs> yeah, you know, and some people do. Fortunately, I don't. However, if anyone does want to contact me, just Google me and you'll find my email address easily enough. Yeah. Okay. Excellent. Well, Nalei, thanks again for joining us. Thanks for having me, Doug. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast. If you liked today's episode, we encourage you to rate us on Apple Podcasts to help expand our audience. If you want to reach out to us, email us at podcast at libertarianchristians.com. You can also reach us at LCI Official on Twitter. And of course, we are on Facebook and have an active group you are welcome to join. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Libertarian Christian Podcast is a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute, a registered 501c3 nonprofit. If you'd like to find out more about LCI, visit us on the web at libertarianchristians.com. The voiceovers are by Matt Bellis and Catherine Williams. As of episode 115, our audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at podsworth.com.